called Meaningless. Looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's been a weird series. It's been a great series so far, but it's been a very weird series because we play videos like that and you feel like super bummed at the end of it. And so I feel like I have to like kind of like like follow up, which is like funny things. And, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes I think we try and offset the uncomfortable seasons God takes us through by like countering them with funny or countering them with circumstances because, because we don't want awkward experiences, and so God, would you be our comic relief? And sometimes I think God just needs to bring us through difficult seasons. And this series has been about Solomon's conversation with other people about their activities under the sun. He uses this phrase often, this ex- our experience under the sun. I often refer to it as, as, as our experiences in, in the dash, in the dash between the year we were born and the year that we die, our experience within the dash. And, and he's come to the conclusion that, that every experience that we have under the sun, under heaven, in this experience we call life, has settled into utter meaningless. He has come to the conclusion that every experience we we go through every every season, every everything we put our hands to, the things that we strive for. Solomon has come to the conclusion that it's all meaningless. So welcome to church. No, uh, but I mean, but we know. Here's the thing that I I never want to shy away from. But we know that because of Christ and because of what Jesus has done on this earth, on the cross, in the tomb, and then on the third day being being resurrected, coming back to life, defeating death, defeating hell, defeating the grave. Because of Jesus, there is nothing meaningless about our existence. There is nothing meaningless about our time under the sun. We may feel like there are seasons that have no meaning, seasons that are difficult, seasons of just toil and strife and not accomplishing anything. But like I said last week, I heard a pastor say this, your worst mess put in the hands of Jesus can be a beautiful work of art. Your worst mess when put in the hands of God can be a a beautiful testimony of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his love. Because of Christ, nothing that you and I go through is meaningless. It all serves a purpose. Sometimes it serves a purpose for us, and sometimes it serves a purpose for others, but it all serves a purpose. This morning, as we dive into uh, part four of this series, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter five, verses one through seven, but I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been in awe of something before? Have you ever been in awe of something before? Awe is not really a word that we, that we use. I, had, I looked it up because I thought I, I felt like maybe I knew what it meant, but, but awe means a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. If you're interested, because I was some, uh, the word awe is synonymous with words like wonder and amazement. Wonder and amazement, and real quick, we're just going to put music on for just like a minute and a half, two minutes for the people sitting around you. I want you to, to answer this question. Have you ever been in awe of something before? And if so, what was it? So for just a couple minutes, we're going to put some music on, minute and a half, two minutes tops, and maybe just share uh, a time when you were in awe of something. Ready, set, it's time to talk in church. Go.
hopefully you're, you're finding out a little bit more about other people. If your conversations didn't finish, that's great. I would encourage you to go out to lunch with the person you're talking with and, and finish that conversation. I, I think for me, if I can just evolve. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to do a lot of talking before, not a lot, but a good amount of talking before I get to the Bible. So I promise you there is Bible in what we're talking about today, but I'm going to do a lot of talking real quick. Uh, for me, I remember the first time I was ever in awe of something. I know some of you are thinking, it was it, was it, was it with the birth of your children? No. Was it when you married your wife? No. Uh, was it when you graduated from college? No. The first time I ever remember being awestruck, I was a senior in high school, and it was spring break, and we did the, the most family thing my family could ever have done, and we loaded up our Astro van, and we drew, all four of us, Astro van, and we drove south to Arizona, and we went and visited the Grand Canyon. We went and visited the Grand Canyon, and I was totally that too cool for my family trip type guy. And the day came where we're like, we're going to go see the Grand Canyon, I guess. And so we all of a sudden show up, and it's like, it's a big hole in the ground, whatever, with my hooded sweatshirt in Arizona, because that's how cool I was. And all of a sudden, I got to this thing, and I looked up, and the breath literally left my body. And it became so much greater than a hole in the ground. It was the most incredible thing. I actually, in those moments, had to remind myself to breathe. I had to remind myself to begin to breathe again because there is no, there was not I had never seen anything like this before the size and the width width and the depth of this thing and there were rivers in the bottom and there were I mean it there were I mean it was I mean it was incredible I was I want to say I was a different person from that experience I'm not sure if I was or if I wasn't but it was the first time I had ever been in awe of something to the point of, and if you know me, being speechless. See, the thing about, about life is the, the list of those things in which I have become in awe of since the Grand Canyon, it's actually a pretty significantly short list uh, because I don't get caught in, in awe of many things. I think as a culture, we've kind of lost the ability to be in awe and wonder of anything. And in those moments when we kind of find ourselves being in awe or wonder or excitement of something, you know, we, we, we can have that first time experience, then all of a sudden, the, the, the second or third time, it's, it, the, the awe and wonder that we felt in that first moment, it kind of dissipates. The things that excite us don't excite us the way that they used to. The things that used to make us wonder as children, we have solved as adults. The things that we used to be in awe of become just kind of footnotes in our Facebook history. And, and, and the regrettable thing about it is the same thing in our lives can happen with God. The same thing in our lives can happen with God. God has the potential of becoming ordinary in our lives. If, we're being a, if, if we want to create a place, and I hope this is a place of honesty, a place of vulnerability, a place of struggle, a place of doubt, I hope that this has become that place for so many people. But if we're just being honest, can't God become very underwhelming? I remember the first time uh, I became a Christian, I, I, uh, the first time, I say first time, there's a lot of stories, and, and so stick with us for the next couple of decades, and you'll hear them. But, uh, but uh, the first time I became a Christian, um, it, was, it was incredible. 
It was incredible. It was, it was, again, nothing like I had ever experienced before. I could not get enough of Jesus. I could not get enough of his word. I could not get enough of, of being a part of the local, the local community, the local church. Man, every worship song was an anthem to my heart. I loved going to church. I loved serving. I loved doing whatever I was needed because, man, I was so in love with Jesus because I had come to the realization that he died for me, that he took my penalty, that he went, he was buried in the grave, that he rose three days later, that he he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He left us the gift of the Holy Spirit so that I can be empowered, as Jesus said, to do greater things than he could, man. How could you not get excited about that? And I remember just like every day opening up my eyes, God, what are your miraculous wonders you want me to see today? Who do you want me to talk to? Who do you want me to pray with? Who do you want me to go? I hope the new Chris Tomlin song's on the radio or the song that Chris Tomlin sings, but he didn't write. That's an inside joke. But anyway, it's just like all these things. I was so excited about everything. And then I realized that a life following Jesus doesn't take away the difficulties of life. I realized that a life following after Jesus doesn't make, don't, doesn't make decisions any less hard to make. I learned that a life being followed after Jesus, people don't like you if, you if you follow after Jesus and then tell them you follow after Jesus. People will assume things about you. A life actually got a lot harder with Jesus than it did without. Nobody told me that. But there I was in my reality. I was... I was I was becoming sort of normal in my experience with God, the excitement and the wonder and the awe that started when, when, when following after Jesus it began to subside into normal. Man, and if you're a follower of Jesus, let me tell you this. Normal will be the assassin of your awe and wonder when it comes to God. Settling into normal is the assassin of awe and wonder, but it happened to me. It happened. I fell into normal, and then all of a sudden, I, I became aware of this phenomenon that was sweeping the nation. It was this phenomenon of Christian conferences. Oh, Christian conference. Oh, what's a Christian? Oh, and it was just like I went to the, my first Christian conference. Oh, it was so incredible. The lights and the sound and the speakers and, the, and then all the Christian-themed T-shirts. I wanted to buy all of it. I don't eat Reese's, but he's risen. I got that T-shirt. Uh, I, I, I mean, it was all those things, and it was so phenomenal. It was so, uh, it was all, I mean, it was, it was, oh, everything about it was, oh, dude, oh. And the feeling of awe and wonder that the Christian conference brought with it somehow didn't match my local church experience. Because instead of seeing Louis Giglio, all I had was my pastor. And I've heard him talk for decades. Instead of having Chris Tomlin lead worship, I had Jane the volunteer trying to find a note. And all of a sudden, there was a huge disconnect between my conference experience and my local church experience. And so I began to resent my local church experience, and I began to live for the next conference. Because then I went to the next conference, and it got me through the garbage that I had to walk into until I got to the next conference. And very quickly, I realized that uh, I wasn't in awe of God. I was in awe of the pursuit of an experience. I wasn't in awe of the, the magnitude that is God. I was in awe of a presentation. And, and, the, and, and the 
It got to the point where I couldn't worship if it wasn't in an arena with intelligent lights and thousands of people singing. I couldn't hear from God unless it was from the, the five speakers that I determined were the voices of God to a generation. I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't feel my calling unless I was in these, in these created experiences. I don't know if that's you, but that's how it was for me. So we find Solomon, the last four verses, talking about the meaningless of the existence, and he's had some good points, and, and he's brought us to a few very significant places, and then all of a sudden, uh, like any person, when they ramble, they can get to a point of truth, like I'm hopefully going to get to. And Solomon, in the midst of his meaningless ramble, in the midst of his emo band tryout, in the midst of his solid dark room with the luminous candle of the center putting on black nail polish and eyeliner, Solomon gets to this point of truth in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He has a clarity moment, and it's very momentary because he jumps right back into the meaningless, but he has this clarity break moment. And he departs from his meaningless rant, and he shifts from this thing over here that exists in life, and he shifts to you, and he shifts to me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this. Solomon says this. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not haste. haste do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of fools when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not, be, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not to fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you to sin, and do not pro uh, protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, and I love this last line, therefore stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of God. When should I stand in awe? Psalms, no, stand in awe of God. What if things aren't going well? Stand in awe of God. What if things aren't going well? Stand in awe. What if I don't like stand in awe of God? If I can give you four pieces of advice, advice when it comes to when we stand in awe of God, I want to encapsulate that with this idea of worship. We're going we're gonna to touch on the topic of worship uh, in, in a few varieties of senses. And so it's not just going to be this idea of singing and playing music. But if I could give you four pieces of advice from this uh, section of scripture when it comes to our engagement with God, when it comes to our worship, regarding worship, if I could give you four just little bits of advice, I, I, I'm going to leave you with this and then we'll be done. Uh, number one is this. Guard your steps. Solomon talks about guarding your steps. And the question that the Holy Spirit began to ask me was, Steve, how do you approach God? <laughs> I never thought of it. You know, to be totally honest with you, because again, there kind of became this normalization of my relationship with God that God was there and I was here and, and, it was, and I saw the t-shirt that he's my homeboy and all that sort of stuff. And so I just figured that there was just kind of this coexisting between me and God. And the Holy Spirit began to ask me, Steve, how do you approach God? Not if you approach him, because the thing that's amazing about God is that he invites us to approach him. He invites us into his presence, but how do we come 
into his presence? How do we approach him? Do we approach him like the t-shirt said that he's just your homeboy and like Jared's my homeboy and I show up and punch him in the shoulder and we kind of shoot the crap every now and then and we go out and have some wings and we kind of have a good time? Or, or is he the master of the, the universe? Is he the creator of all things? Is he the headpiece in the Trinity that offers us God the Son and God the Spirit? Is he, is he God? Do we approach him as such? In, in Exodus 3, um, Moses, approached, Moses sees a bush burning in the middle of the desert, which is peculiar. Maybe not in California right now. We should probably be praying for the people in California right now. I don't know if that was a weird joke or whatever, but it's what popped in my head, so I said it. Um, but Moses encounters this burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and, and <laughs> I think Moses had a better idea of what was going on than maybe I would in that moment. I would probably just walk up and, this is weird. This is obscure. This is kind of, uh, there, sh- there has to be a reason for this. There, you know, I tr- I'm trying to figure out how to prove away the awe and the wonder. And Moses has this connection because he understands the presence that exists in the flames. Moses approaches the burning bush. He approaches the, the presence of God with awe, with wonder, with reverence. And it's the way that we approach God that leads us to the hearing of how we hear God. You know, if I approach God like I approach Jared, Jared can tell me some things and I can listen to Jared or I can choose not to. You know, that's just kind of how relationships work, isn't it? Like my wife can say, hey, don't wear that shirt. I'm going to wear it anyway. And then later I'd be like, I shouldn't have worn this shirt. You know? (laughs) Or do we approach God like Moses approaches the bush in reverence and understanding that something significant in this place and in this moment's going to happen? And because there's something significant happening in this moment, it attunes my ear in a way that normal situations don't. So I listen more intently, more introspectively. I listen with a purpose to the voice of God that comes into my experience, that comes into my space. Because reverence leads us to listen to God intently and submissively. When God calls us to something, we understand that he's the one in control, and so we submit to his plan, but it all begins with how we approach. The thing that I've learned about God is I can either approach him humbly or he can humble me later. It's much easier to approach God humbly than to have him humble you later. And so Moses approaches the bush with humility, with expectancy. He attunes his ear, his ear expectantly and submissively. submissively. And the question that the Lord asked me is the question that I'm going to ask you is how do you approach God? How do you approach him? Are your steps guarded? So that as you approach him, you have an understanding of who he is. I think if more of us, myself included, were to approach God with the way that he deserves to be approached, we wouldn't walk towards God in arrogance as if if we were God's manager. You know, God, you've been doing pretty good for a while, but you know what? You could tighten this up a little bit better. And we become critics. We become managers in the way that we approach him and not understand. And, and, And the problem that I have is that I don't understand who he is in the moment I need him to be that. So I approach him. Not with humility, but with arrogance. 
Not with expectancy, but with just a, a sense of normalcy. When it comes to worship, when it comes to our experience with God, when it comes to so many things about our relationship with him, our, our steps have, have our steps been guarded so that we will never approach him in a way that he is undeserving of being approached. Thought number two is this, uh, pray with reverence. Pray with reverence. Have you ever um, cooked a really great steak quickly? No. That's the answer. No. I was talking to somebody about this message at the wedding that I was DJing last night. That's a very weird sentence, I understand. But there were only 41 people, and it was done at 930. And the bride and the groom were Christians, and we had a good conversation. I told them about church. It was awesome. I had this conversation where I was talking about this idea of praying with reverence, and I said the first question that I'm going to introduce myself with this topic is, is, have you ever cooked a steak quickly? Have you ever cooked a great steak quickly? And I said, no, you can't. And he said, well, I saw Gordon Ramsay do it, and that's Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> if you cook a great steak quickly, that steak is not great. <laughs> and watch out, because it will get you. But no, it, it, the quality things never happen impulsively. Or with haste. I mean, intimacy, like we talked about, uh, I think it was last week, we talked about this idea of intimacy. I mean, that takes time. Look, I, when, 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 I, when I come to God hastily or impulsively, which usually, as, as I approach God, when it's usually that way, it's usually because God has become my last resort as opposed to my first response. When I approach God hastily and, and impulsively, uh, what I'm trying to do, if I can just be honest, and again, you're going to get a lot about me. This has nothing to do with you. This is all about me today. And so if, if I'm being honest, when I approach God this way, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, in one way or another, manipulate God to do what I want him to do. A situation's got out of, uh, out of control. Uh, sometimes I feel like it's that way with this building project. Uh, but like, think, we wrote a $10,000 check, and I was compromising with God as I was writing this check. All right, God, I'm, with each zero, you're going to bring that many people to our church because I'm trusting you in faith, and I'm writing this check, and we're following, the, and I'm trying to compromise with God. I'm trying to manipulate God to do what I want him to do. Because I think he should, I'm trying to convince him to go my way. I mean, just saying that out loud sounds crazy. Saying that out loud sounds so crazy. And, 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 but, but I do that so often because when I approach him, uh, when I approach him uh, uh, impulsively or with haste, I'm trying to convince him to do things my way rather than submitting to his, his plans because he's God. Rather than coming to him and praying to him in reverence and understanding that he is the one in control and he allows the things that happen in my life to happen, that he is the one who walks with me and talks with me. And I love the psalm because he tells me that I'm his own. That's the God we serve. And so he walks with us and he engages with us. And, and, but, but I have to submit to his plan because I have to. I have to understand that he's the one in control. The moment I think I'm in control, I am in trouble. And sometimes I lose sight of God's magnificence. Sometimes I lose sight of his greatness. Sometimes I just limit God to being my vending machine. 
All right, well, I got in trouble this way, so I'm going to press A, and I'm going to press 8, and that's going to get me out of this situation quick. And then next week, I'm going to press C2, and that's going to get me out of this situation. And then I'm going to press D7, and that's going to solve this problem, and that's going to do this, and the this, and the this, and the this. And, and the Holy Spirit asked me, okay, so how do you approach me? But then when you approach me, how do you talk to me? Because I guarantee you we would not allow our kids to talk to us the way that we talk to God. I guarantee you, we would never allow our kids to try and manipulate us the way that we try and manipulate God. So after we deal with the question of how do we approach God, we have to deal with the question of how do we talk to God? Do we talk to him in reverence? Or do we immediately go into our laundry list of things we need him to do? Hmm. Thought number three was don't make a hasty vow. Have you ever made a promise to somebody and had no intention of keeping? If you're a parent, absolutely. <laughs> we do it all the time. Uh, I do it all the time. Hoping that they get distracted. I know it's a follow-up because usually my, 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 I, I, I out-promise my wallet usually is what kind of usually goes on. And so then they get distracted. And a couple of times they've caught me on it and I, it's you know, whatever. When uh, I was thinking about um, the idea of the word vow, and again, it's a word we don't often use. We did a series about it uh, a few months back on marriage, um, this idea of wedding vows. But, I mean, the, the, the premise still applies that when it comes to vows, when it comes to making a vow, um, what we're doing is we're actually entering into a covenant. And covenants are very difficult to break. They're not intended to be broken. They're intended to be honored. Uh, they, they may not feel like a normal part of our lives, but during the time of Solomon, making vows, vows was actually a regular part of life. It was, it was a regular part of a person's experience. Uh, but the idea of a vow was that it was either a promise or a sacrifice or payment to God in return for something, in return for a, a favor. And so if I'm going to make a covenant with Andrew, uh, I'm going to say, Andrew, if you do this for me, I'll follow it up with this. I'm, I'm inciting the vow. I'm introducing the covenantial agreement between him and me. And if Andrew fulfills his part, but I back away from mine, I have broken that vow. I have broken that covenant. And that's actually a really serious thing. And so often, and you may be like me, you maybe have uttered these words, God, if you do blank, I promise I will do blank. And how many of us have said those things with no intention of ever doing them? And the difficult thing that I was learning as I was studying for this is that it doesn't matter if you're not meaning to follow up. God has an expectation that you will follow up with your vow. That the covenantial relationship would not be broken because you were too desperate to throw out your greatest fear. God, I will promise to be a missionary in Africa if you help me pass this math test. Because when you put it in comparison, isn't it equally as silly? Like, I won't do the worst thing that God you could ever, like, God, I will never, I promise, I will plant a church in South Minneapolis if you get me out of Louisiana. 
That was real. That was a real prayer. And God got me out of Louisiana. And then there was a real conversation of, oh, yeah, we probably, oh, man. If you wanted to know how we approached this church plan, initially it was, oh, man. But then, because we realized that God was God, and that our worst-case scenario request actually became our greatest dream, it's amazing how God does those things. But um, Solomon is saying when it comes to our vow, don't make a hasty vow. Don't make a quick vow because if you do, the weight of that vow still is attached to you. There's an expectation that you are to fulfill that. Uh, the amazing thing is I was studying is that I never, I never realized this, but a vow is voluntary. The vow is voluntary, but the weight, the true heavy weight of the vow, it carries with you no matter if there was no intention. And so Solomon's warning to you and to me is that we need to be careful with our words. We need to be careful with our words. And if we honor and respect God enough that we should know what we're saying to him and that we follow up. And so how do we approach God? How do we speak to God? What do we say to God? And then thought for is this. That we're to stand in awe of God. That we're to stand in awe of God. The, and again, the question was, what, what is worship? If we think about this word worship outside of, of the church or even within the church, what is worship? If you're wondering, well, worship is simply just a public declaration of your love for something. Worship is a public declaration of our love for something. Could it be God? Sure. Could it be a sports team? Absolutely. Could it be stuff? Yeah, totally. Could it be the new car, the boat? Yes. Could it be vacations? Totally. We can worship countless things when it comes to our lives, but we are called to stand in awe of one thing and one person only, and that is God. Solomon's been talking in the last four chapters, everything you're striving for and everything you're trying for and everything you're working for eventually will be in a 25-cent bin at a garage sale after you die. That stuff is not worth being in awe of, but there's this God, this creator who created you with purpose and on purpose and for purpose. And yes, life may be difficult at times, but he is faithful in the midst of that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. That is something and someone to stand in awe of. And so if we are to stand in awe of anything, the lights are great and the production is wonderful, but if we lose sight of the awe of God and we begin to put our awe on the experience, we will continue to chase cheap thrill after cheap thrill after cheap thrill when there is a God who is ever deserving of all, all honor and praise and glory and he is simply existing around us and with us and we are missing it. This part of Solomon's teaching speaks very much to the contrast of what we give too often of what I give too often. Because if I'm being really honest, and I'm, I try and do that as much as I can, it may feel weird at times, but I'm trying to be as honest as I can, there are many times that I will lead worship hoping you are impressed with me. I 
And I'm in awe of my ability and I'm in awe of my talents and I am in awe of my ability to lead a room. And there is a God who was like, yeah, and all whatever. But here's the deal, man. I am so much better than all of that. I am so much better than all of your emotional musical manipulation. If you just sought me, man, you, you wouldn't have any worry whatsoever because I am worth being in awe of. The idea of standing in awe of God and God alone speaks in such contrast to what we settle for. I was, uh, this, uh, a guy named Derek Kinder, he wrote a, a really amazing book called uh, A Time to Mourn and a Time to Dance. Uh, it's, it's just a, a summarization or just an explanation within the book of Ecclesiastes. It's an old book, but it's a phenomenal book. And he, uh, he gives us a perfect summarization uh, when it comes to what we settle for, when it comes to our worship, and when it comes to the improper way that we use worship. And I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's so good. This is what uh, Derek Kinder says. He says, uh, this writer, Solomon, this writer's target of this writing is the well-meaning person who likes a good sing and turns up cheerfully to church, but who listens with half, half an ear and never quite gets round to what he has volunteered to do for God. Have you ever read a book and felt the pressure? Have you ever read somebody else's words and they have the weight of God to them? question I want to leave us with this morning is this. Are we in awe of God or are we simply in awe of being in awe? This was an uncomfortable one for me. So I figured I would just share the experience. But here's the question that I hope we wrestle with. Because there's a lot of things grabbing for our attention. There's a lot of things that are grabbing for our sense of awe. There's a lot of things grabbing for our sense of amazement and wonder. And although things are wonderful and amazing, we cannot lose sight of the fact that God is a God who deserves to be in awe of. And so the question I want to leave us with this morning is, are you in awe of God or simply in awe of being awe? in awe of being in awe. Lord, uh, I don't like this one. Because it pulls back the, the sheet of so much of who I am. God, forgive me for moments when I've allowed you to become normal in my life. Forgive me for those moments when I've allowed you be, to become ordinary. Forgive me for those times when I've cheapened you to a production. Father, my prayer for myself and my prayer for every single person in this room. Father, would you just reignite in our hearts and in our spirits, 
how magnificent and how wonderful you are. Father, would you reignite in us an awe that is only fitting of you. Because God, I don't want to be impressed with anything else if I'm not impressed with you more. Lord, as your scripture says, would you in this place, for me and for so many, would you restore the joy of our salvation? God, thanks for your word, even the parts that are uncomfortable. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for your love for us. God, you love us so incredibly well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen, guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the week. Just a reminder, we've got those ABCs of Coffee prints available for sale at the Welcome Center as well as uh, Sparkle Information and Connect Cards. But have a wonderful rest of your day, guys. We love you, and we'll see you uh, next Sunday. This is harder than I thought, harder than I thought it'd be, harder than I thought, taking every part of me, harder than I thought, so much harder than I thought it'd be, and these never felt so full.